Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Lisa Dando, director of Brighton Women's Centre, an organisation where the services and support are about putting the woman at the centre of her care. Lisa shares the holistic support BWC provides for women from all walks of life, including women in the justice system and discusses the need for gender-specific services. I'm Lisa Dando, I'm the director of BWC, which is also known as Brighton Women's Centre, but we tend to use the acronym because we're now obviously working outside of Brighton, delivering services more widely than the city of of Brighton. Okay, and then the million-dollar question, really, that I think we should kick off with is, what exactly is a women's centre and why do women's centres have to exist these days? Okay, that's an excellent question. And, you know, it is quite a tricky one to answer (laughs) because it's it sounds as if it should be quite a simple answer but I think because women's centres are you know quite diverse um, and contain quite a wide range of sort of support services and activities they're quite difficult to sort of nail in a simple in a simple definition but I suppose the simplest thing to say about them is that It's a place where the services and the support are very much about putting the woman at the centre of her care and wrapping the services around around her and the support that she needs. So there's no sort of um, preconceived ideas about what that support looks like or what the needs are um, from the woman's perspective, because we're not saying that we are, you know, a sort of domestic abuse charity or a mental health charity or finance benefit and debt sort of you know charity although we do you know deal with all of those pathways uh, of support and we try and do that in a very holistic and joined up way either by providing those services in-house ourselves or through specialists who come in and co-locate and work with the women's centre staff to provide the services or through community engagement with other organisations and services that are far more knowledgeable in those specialist areas than, than we can be. Okay and the women that we're talking about for the sort of listeners benefit um, have they all come through a criminal justice pathway or are these women who could sort of self-refer off the street how do they get to you? Yeah, they come to us in many different through many different referral routes. So yes, we are one of those women's centres, and I should say, I, I suppose there's about sort of thirty five of us across the country. So we're 
a relatively well-known model, but we're not, you know, brilliantly well-known, I guess, because people will recognise other services like refuges, probably more so than, than women's centres. I say that because often when I try and explain what a women's centre is, people assume automatically that we are a women's refuge project. So it's quite important to make that distinction. So women can come to us through many different routes. And we are, as I say, one of those women's centres that do work with women that are in the criminal justice system. Not, not all do, but we are one of those that do. So we work very closely with probation. We see women on their community orders. We work with women who come um, out of prison into the community, but women can also self-refer. So we run open access women's hubs in various venues across Sussex. And so women can just walk straight through the door, be met with a member of staff or a volunteer and be supported to work out what sorts of services and support they need. And then they can be referred into other services within the organisation or in you know in other community organisations um, in the local area. Okay and do you offer beds and are you sort of residential because of course many women who come out of prison um, have issues with being homeless don't they or their homes aren't safe places to be because they might have an abusive yes. partner. Yeah it's absolutely a massive issue and I would say over the years that I've worked at BWC, it's the issue that I think has escalated the most, that we that we see more prevalence of, many more. I don't know about you, Edwina, but I'm certainly noticing more women on the streets than I did, you know, a, a few Absolutely. years ago. And yeah. we know that there were, you know, that women's homelessness was a problem um, previously anyway, but it was a kind of hidden, more of a hidden problem via sofa surfing and, and things like that. So I would say that homelessness is probably our biggest um, uh, sort of concern at the moment. And as a result of that, a few years ago, we, we did develop a, a, a specific um, a, a sort of bespoke women's supports, uh, accommodation support service for women. And we are now really wanting to look at you know how could we potentially move into providing a residential um support for women because it would be the natural next step will be okay. a very different model of working for an organization that's very much you know about sort of not always nine to five because we do do some out of hours but certainly not in the realms of providing accommodation yeah so at the moment what you just help them to sort of try and find accommodation as yeah, opposed to providing close. the accommodation yeah Absolutely. Yeah, we work very closely with sympathetic landlords, with local authorities, you know, try the best we can to get, you know, the, the best possible solution to a woman's, you know, um, either homelessness situation or indeed, as you say, if she's trying to flee domestic abuse or she just needs to be moved somewhere that feels safer and more secure for her, for her and her children. OK, the piece that sits behind all of this, um, because it's a it's obviously a complex area, isn't it? And there's sort of multiple things going on at once. And I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the women that you might see or that we see nationally um, have children um, or are primary carers. So, so what do you do sort of in that sense? Because, of course, you know, many women might have had their children removed. Many children might be in the process of having their children removed, whether they've been to prison or, or are maybe on their way to prison or they're fleeing domestic violence. So how, how do the children sit within the picture of BWC? Well, we do have um, a preschool. We're fortunate enough to have a preschool, um, which, you know, from my perspective, running a women's charity feels you know, really important that we are able to offer that. It's quite challenging to keep its doors open because it's a very niche, small 
facility. Um, it is open to the external sort of community. So it's not just for those women that are coming into, into BWC, but we also do run childcare or crash um, uh, support for uh, women with, with children that are sort of lower than or younger than two years old. So they have, do have that support for their children if they're coming to, to see us for, for their own, you know, their own sort of um, needs. Um, but as you quite rightly point out, a lot of the women that we see, we don't often see them until they get to quite a critical point in their life, which inevitably would mean that many of them have had their children, you know, taken into care or removed from their care. One of the things that, you know, I would really want to sort of be thinking about, you know, how we can secure resources for is putting in place that support, reaching those women earlier and putting in place that support in order for women to be able to keep their children, you know, at home with them before, you know, that that removal happens. But we do and we do do a lot of work with social services to try and, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, work with the, with mum to avoid that from happening. But as I say, more often than not, I think we, we, we see women once they get to a more critical point in their lives and then trying to get those women, those children back at home is incredibly challenging. It's, you know, it, it, there's a whole wealth of stuff that goes on, as, as you well know, Edwina, in terms of the stigma and the assumptions that are being made about, you know, how possible it is for a woman to parent when she's been through a very difficult time in her life. There might be substance misuse involved, for example. <clears throat> that makes it very challenging, I think, then to sort of be able to provide a convincing enough case for why those children you know, would be better served being back at home with their mum and which I think is possible but it's often a really hard thing to achieve. Yeah and so what proportion would you say out of the women that you see coming and going what proportion have their children with them? It's hard to say because obviously some of the women that we work with through some of our service areas are older women who have got grown-up children. Okay. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, younger, younger women who um, have children who would be at home with them, then, yes, I mean, possibly a third. But again, I think it's quite I think it's quite a tricky question to answer because they're not all criminal justice involved women. So they've, they've come from many different backgrounds and come through to us for many different reasons. So it, it's a bit of a tricky one that yeah. I would say to answer definitively. Yeah, no problem. And and with the women that are on the sort of criminal justice pathway, if you like, and um, they'll be sentenced to you, will they, from the magistrate's court or how does how does that referral pathway work? Yes, they will. So we work very closely with our probation colleagues and we're still very much involved, especially through the reunification of the probation service. So we are delivering, still continuing to deliver support for, for the women or, you know, has, as I think Ministry of Justice would term it, rehabilitation services. So the referral would come from the probation officers. So if a magistrate sentences a woman to a community order, um, if she doesn't get sentenced to, you know, to a prison sentence, then we would work with the probation officers to support that woman in the community, delivering support sessions to try and meet the needs that ha have potentially resulted in her um, tipping up in, in the criminal justice system. And, and we know, don't we, that sort of the majority of women in our 12 women's prisons in England, are the majority sort of over 85% are in for non-violent crime. So... There's a big debate, isn't there? Well, not so much of a debate as the fact that we all know it and we're trying to push hard to make sure that 
less women are sent to prison for crimes which we believe do not cross the custody threshold, for example, robbery and this low-level acquisitive crime. So most of the women that therefore come to you, are their crimes more like the low-level acquisitive crime and sort of robbery and the non-violent side of things? Or what do you see? Yes, absolutely. That's still, I think, predominantly the case. And, you know, and as you quite rightly say, Edwina, we really, you know, want to advocate strongly for keeping those women in the community because, you know, as we've just discussed, Going into prison is one of the, you know, one of the reasons why children are removed from those women's um, care. So that's there's another whole knock-on effect intergenerationally for for those children who have not actually done anything wrong and yet have the care of their mothers taken away from them through the woman herself being sent into into prison. So partly why we are in the space of working with our criminal justice um, colleagues is because we really want to see those women kept in the community, kept in their own homes and supported to deal with those issues that have resulted in them having, you know, sort of committed to crime uh, and keep them out of prison you know, as as much as we can. In fact, we've just started delivering a really exciting new innovative pro- uh, project around um working much more intensively um, at breach court. So for those women who are at risk of breaching their community order and therefore going into prison, we're now doing a particular programme of support around that cohort of women to keep them engaged with um, with their order in the community so that they don't end up being sentenced to to prison. It's, a, it's called From Port to Support and it's a, a pilot project which we're delivering in Sussex. And we're really excited to see what the learning from that could be because, you know, hopefully if it's if it's positive, then there's a, you know, there's a possibility it could be rolled out more widely. Because a lot of the stories that I hear, for example, the magistrate will say to a woman on her community sentence, well, you have to attend this anger management programme and you have to do, you have to jump through these hoops. But if you fail to turn up to one of those groups or fail to do the things that I have asked you to do, then that is a breach of your licence, your community licence. And therefore, um, someone can pick that woman up and sort of take them effectively back to prison, right? So the reasons that women will often breach their licence or not turn up to their programme, I've heard that they are asked to do things like sit through anger management sort of groups or address their traumatic pasts in mixed sex groups with men. So that strikes me as something quite easy that could, I say quite easy, I always think everything's easy in my head, Um, but, but do you see that? Do you see the reasons of women breaching their licences and not wanting to do things? Is the answer sort of quite obvious sometimes? Like, of course, I don't want to talk about my history of sexual abuse in front of men, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, one of the positives, I suppose, more recently through the reunification of the probation service and the recommissioning of of services is that we're now seeing less of a postcode lottery in terms of the provision of women-only services for those women um, you know, who, who are on community orders, who, as you say, are sentenced to attend a number of sessions. We can be a lot more flexible and um, accommodate the, you know, the specific issues and needs that the women are coming to us with uh, and and as you say you know, and ensure that through a women's centre that, that that support is in a women-only safe space which does enable the woman to talk about what's going on for her in a place where she doesn't feel judged and other people aren't hearing you know the stuff that is something that she 
quite rightly would not want other people to hear about. There's enough shame in talking to your one support worker about it, let alone a group of a group of people and indeed a mixed group of people. I mean, even groups of women can sometimes be challenging, understandably, when you've got that sort of level of, of sort of, um, you know, uh, difficulty in your background that you don't want to be sort of divulging to people. So the one to one support that we can provide is really key in that as well. Yeah, and an extreme but um, I think important sort of case to highlight, for example, was the recent tragedy of the lady um, teenager, 18-year-old in Bronzefield, who gave birth in prison um, by herself in her cell and the Prison and Probation's Ombudsman report um, did report out in the last few days. Um, some of the listeners might have seen it. It contains some horrific details, which I won't go into because it's there for anyone to read if they want to. But the fact of the matter is that girl was in on remand for robbery. She gave birth alone in her cell. Her baby died and she was actually subsequently bailed, which means that she didn't really need to be in prison. And had there been a women's centre available for her or had she been sent to one, things could have turned out quite differently, could they not? I mean, what did you feel when you were sort of reading reading that? Because I obviously had my head in my hands and we all knew about it two years ago, right? So it, was, um, it hit the news back then. But I just thought she should have been in a women's centre. She shouldn't have been anywhere near a prison and actually not just because she was pregnant that's that's just another factor in the story that she was pregnant but she was on remand so it it means she wasn't sentenced she didn't spend long in there and then they bailed her so yeah, she left yeah. absolutely horrifying set of circumstances and yeah i mean equally uh, you know as you've described your know, head in hand stuff really i mean you know this sort of thing should not be happening in in the 21st century um and you know and i know quite rightly there's a lot of, of sort of campaigning including a petition that's out there at the moment you know looking for signatures to to really you know sort of reiterate the case for you know pregnant women just not being sent to prison it just does not seem at all appropriate to be sentencing pregnant women to to prison um you know, again, as I was, as I touched on earlier, it almost feels as if, you know, we are punishing the children, punishing the unborn child in this case, you know, sort of pretty dramatically um, for, for something that, you know, is, is down to the mother to try and deal with and resolve um, herself without the impact on, on her family. And often, as you've said, you know, um, very eloquently, these are the reasons why women do rock up in the criminal justice system is because of the life events that have driven them there. And those are the things that we need to understand and work on and support the women, the women to address. And women's centres are the place where that happens. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't understand um, understandably, because the criminal justice system can be quite a sort of, you know, mysterious place, even for those of us who've worked in it for a long time, quite frankly. Um, but when I'm describing it to people, I say, you know, and this is where the gender specific nature um, of our work comes in and, and must come in because, you know, crime is gendered. And when you look at a community, community sentence for a woman, for example, 
I often tell people that women find it more difficult to be safe in the community because of maybe a male pimp, a male gang lord, a male abusive partner. Um, so the community and society can be quite a dangerous place for her in order to be able to jump through all the hoops of her community sentence. And behind women's criminality, you usually find a male gang lord, a male pimp or a male abusive partner or someone in that sort of controlling uh, behaviour, in that, in that position of power. But when you look at men, you don't usually find a female pimp, a female gang lord, a female abusive partner. Of course, there are abusive female partners out there, but you really have to look, don't you, at that gendered nature. And then when I say that, people go, oh, I hadn't really thought about it like that. And it doesn't take much sometimes to make people see the sort of the different side if if people are willing to listen. Yes. Yeah. And it's political as well, isn't it? I mean, I guess it depends, you know, how much in society we're looking for retribution and how much we're looking for rehabilitation and change. And if we really want to address offending behaviour, you know, we know that we, in order to tackle that, we've got to look at those underlying causes for why people have ended up offending. And inevitably, if we can find the the sort of, um, you know, the way with all to do that, then I think we stand a much better chance of reducing offending in society, which is ultimately what we all want. Well, exactly. And the Ministry of Justice's own data lab, of course, um, did report that women's centres do reduce reoffending, which is great. Um, but sending women to prison, we know, does not reduce women's offending. So it's very, I sort of sometimes feel um, that I live in a parallel universe, where sort of constantly going, no, we're also trying to stop women from committing crime, but we're trying to do it in this way that we know works. And more cheaply, of course. Of course. Let's talk about the money, because I, I did want to get on to that. Um, can you, I think I've got figures at the top of my head, but you'll be better at it. There's sort of prison versus um, a women's centre's place. Yes, I mean, the, the prison sort of, the, the place of a, the, the cost of a prison place sort of varies a little bit, doesn't it, depending on which sort of literature you look at. But I think it's roughly £45,000 a year it costs to send a woman to, to prison. And the cost of a community uh, order for a woman at a women's centre is more like £2,000. £45,000, roughly, compared to £2,000. And we know that community sentences are effective in reducing reoffending, and sending a woman to prison is not effective in reducing their reoffending. And I'm now pushing my temples, because even though I know this, <laughs> I find myself saying it out loud and going, this is ridiculous! Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a case, isn't it, where you'd really hope that the figures could speak for themselves um, and it's a sort of, you know, no-brainer, if I can use that, that that term. But unfortunately, it just doesn't seem to be sort of really, um, you know, coming across in the way in which you would hope it would. You, no. You'd like to think, wouldn't you, that the, sort of the Treasury would want to be saving that kind of money. But it, unfortunately, you know, for whatever reason, it's it's still an argument that the women's sector really, you know, continues to need to make um and you know i think we're sort of chipping away at it but it still isn't being sort of heard as as clearly as we would want it to be 
And you're a charity. So tell me how much um, it costs you um, a year to sort of run your organisation and how you financially stay afloat, if you don't mind. No, of course not. No. I mean, again, the cost per annum of running the organisation will very much vary on the second part of your question, which is, you know, on based, depends on how much we can sort of bring in and therefore you know, what level of service provision we, you know, we, we can sort of deliver on. So I would say at the moment for um, Brighton Women's Centre, which is one of the, the sort of small to medium women's centres, our sort of turnover is around um, £600,000 a year. And we do work, as I say, across across Sussex. And in fact, we're really excited that we will be actually be delivering a service into West Kent. We are delivering, I should say, a service into West Kent currently. So we're, we're still looking at sort of, you know, trying to spread the net and expand our services as far as we, we possibly can. Um, but it, it remains a challenge to bring in the funds to, to deliver the services. We're very thank, thankful that we do have um, our new uh, community rehabilitation service contract, which will stand us in good stead for the next almost five years, which is quite an unusual position, I think, for uh, a charity in the women's sector to have that guarantee of, of income for that period of time. Often we're sort of looking at funding that's much more one year two year maybe three years if we're really lucky so for example through a national lottery um funded grant which would be up to three years we feel, we feel quite fortunate often to have that that level of security so it is a sort of you know a constant and the biggest part of my role is to source the funding and the income to keep to keep the doors open and we do that through a whole range of you know different different ways charitable trust funds um you know contracts commissions local government national government donations sponsorship um, yeah, we have to get quite creative to look at ways in which we can sort of ensure that what we do doesn't destabilise and sort of worry the women that are coming into our service. So keep that sort of that door open. But there's a lot of we're a bit like a sort of duck, I suppose, in a the pond. There's a lot of paddling of, of the sort of the feet under the water going on to maintain that serene appearance on, on the surface, <laughs> or at least we hope it's serene. <laughs> you always look very serene to me, Lisa. Absolute miracle, considering what women's centres have been through over the last few years. But um, so, because of course, I mean, I've always thought about this, you know, the sort of charitable model in a way and people having to sort of basically panic all the time about where the money's going to come from whilst doing some really, really difficult work um, and thinking, my God, if this grant falls through or if people don't renew, A, it's the women and the children who suffer um, but the, the staff as well, right? There's people yeah, who have jobs absolutely. and yeah. who are doing very, very difficult jobs um, against the odds and not um, paid huge amounts. Um, and then that might sort of disappear yeah. if the funding yeah. doesn't come in, which seems, yeah, you know, like a... Absolutely. seems like not the most ideal way to run services for vulnerable people, does it? I mean, you know, we've got to do the best we can. But I mean, I think for me, it's about the passion, isn't it? I mean, we have to, like you say, we're not making mega bucks out of this. And we do give a lot of our, you know, energy, time, resources. So it has to be about the passion. It has to be about that, you know, that determination to want to make a difference. You know, we're women and we know 
you know, a bit about what some of this feels like. I don't think any of us that work in this sector have not been touched in some way by, you know, some of the issues that are affecting the women that we're supporting on a daily basis. So we really care. You know, I see that in my staff team. They really care. They're really passionate. They give above and beyond. And, you know, as we say, are not are not for the financial side of things. Um, and then, you know, of course, that sort of risk of potential redundancy when you know the funding looks like it won't come through. It's a really scary place. But I think it's, you know, it's the passion that people that keep people going. And when we hear how you know women's lives can be turned around, I mean, there's just something really you know, magical and fulfilling about that. And it still sets the hairs, you know, on the back of my neck, sort of, you know, they still raise when I, when I hear, you know, when I talk to a woman and hear just what an impact the service has had and what a difference it's made. I and mean, that's the thing that, that, yeah, keeps me going at it. Absolutely. So is the answer a sort of on a financial level? I mean, of course, if you could wave a magic wand, you'd sort of, you know, not have to worry about fundraising. But does the answer then lie in gaining contracts. I mean, I know that's no easy feat. And I know the processes that you have to jump through in order to be even looked at for commissioning is nigh on impossible. Um, But is that a better route than having to write bids to charitable foundations, for example, or... Well, I used to think so. I mean, when I joined the organisation, crikey, 13 years ago now, it was a very small organisation and we mainly operated on sort of um, small charitable trust funds and donations. And so we made a huge effort to move into the realms of making ourselves, you know, really fit for purpose to, to, to be able to bid for contracts and commissions. And there was a big part of my sort of career at BWC where I felt like that was the route, the way to go. But I've completely turned, you know, turned around from that now, um, having, I suppose, been through that experience of what that sort of process, that procurement process is like and sort of how bureaucratic and and sort of, you know, resource intensive it, it is. Um, I, I, I really strongly feel like grant funding, you know, needs to be the way forward. I mean, I, I'm sure you, you know, you're aware, do we know that a group of uh, women's centres, five of us work with the women's budget group to sort of um, write a report um, sort of a couple of years ago. Well, no, maybe it probably is a couple of years ago now, but it's, it's still obviously very current. But we talk about some of the solutions in, in that report and the recommendations. And the fact that I think what most of us really require in all in order to be stabilized and and continue to be stable is that sort of percentage of core cost funding that we need to sort of just maintain the infrastructure of the organization we can bring in the project funds to keep the services open um but we can only do that if we have the core cost funding that maintains the infrastructure the sorts of things that are really challenging to generate you know support of the funding for for example you know HR costs, finance, premises, um, the chief exec salary sometimes, you know, often funders and commissioners want to see the money being directly put into the, the activity or the service provision. So there's not always an understanding that actually you need, you still need all this other yeah. stuff. You kind of need some staff to deliver the programs, for example. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that core funding, I think, is really, really critical. 
Right. And if anyone wants to learn more, we'll make sure that all your details for Brighton Women's Centre are in the sort of footnotes to, to the podcast. But um, Lisa, it's been so nice to speak to you again after what we I, we think it's been a couple of years, don't we? We've all lost track yeah. of time. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you, Edwina. It's always great to have a conversation with you. So thank you. Yeah, not at all. Thanks for everything you do. Oh, well, thank you too. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoy- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.